Hi, I'm Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and you're listening to The Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Affirmative. That was definitely an e-ticket. I can't believe all the new gadgets they've got now. For a while, we didn't even have a house phone, not to mention laser discs, high-def TV. You are listening to The Great Big Beautiful Podcast. This week on the show... So, like, when we would go see, especially around that time, like, go see Jurassic Park or mm. Star Wars or uh, a lot of these um, these movies that John Williams scored, actually, I would then go by the recordings and listening to that and still feeling the same feelings and excitement and all the stuff that I felt whenever I watched the film, I realized that, that this music has a lot of power. This music is actually a big part of the storytelling, and so I think that's part of why um, why I decided so early I wanted to, to do it. Here are your hosts, Jamie Green and Justin Connors. Welcome to another episode of The Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com and you can find us on the social interwebs at thegbbpodcast. I'm your host, Jamie Green. You can find me at The Roarbots and joining me once again this week is... Samantha Fisher. Hello, how are you? I am doing all right. How are you? That's all right. All right. It's been a whole week. How did that happen? We blinked. We blinked and they just flew right by. I don't know, man. People, I remember when I was young and adults would be all like, oh, time gets so much faster. Enjoy it now when you're young. And I just thought they were being old and crazy. And it turns out they were right. (laughs) You know, our parents were right about a whole lot of things. Let's just not tell them. <laughs> Hope they're not listening. Uh, but yeah, it, it's kind of scary. It, like as you get older, time really does go faster. And I'm not sure if Einstein is that is that Einstein's fault? Like the whole relativity thing? Yes. Yeah. It's because right. of the hair. It's the it's the it's Einstein's hair. It's his. It's that. It's the fault of his hair that that we're blinking and waking up next month well see no it's it the hair is clearly moving at a different speed than his body that's how it stands you stood up so well got it okay well let's talk about music because uh music i find when when uh the days speed up it, it helps slow them down sometimes <laughs> it can or if you're <laughs> if you're me and you want to speed things up like you know, you're cooking dinner, which is yeah, boring, right? You listen, you listen to music when you cook, uh, almost every time. Yeah, really. What do you listen to? Um, I listen to a lot of different stuff. Um, which actually funny that you asked because the other night, um, I was cooking dinner, and um, my my ex husband arrived to to drop our son off, and um, commented on the fact that my musical choice was very weird because there were all different sorts of music. Cause it was on random. Okay. Um, and it just had all these songs in there. So there had been like some, you know, modern swing music and a, a couple country songs and some hip hop. <laughs> so you're just kind of all over the place musically. Yes. I listen to everything. Is there anything you don't listen to? I don't like gospel music. Okay. Not a huge fan of bluegrass. Really? Yeah, I don't hate it, but I don't really like it. See, I'm not a big fan of country music in general, but I I, I enjoy me some bluegrass every now and then. Like, I'm not going to sit down and like just listen to bluegrass all day every day. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to lie, there are times when I just kind of get in the mood for a little bit of banjo and a little bit of bluegrass, and it, it kind of picks me up. You are missing out. There's some seriously good country artists out these days. Um, yeah. trying to think there, I, his first name was escaping me, Chris Stapleton. Okay. If you haven't listened to any quote unquote modern country, go listen to him. All right. I'll try it. The only, like the closest to country that I get, like, all right, if I'm on the driving and like, I am forced to listen to the radio and every other channel is on like commercial. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'll listen to country. Like, I don't know who anybody is, but it's not that I like detest it. Uh, The closest that I get to listening like voluntarily to country is when it like, 
I don't know, there's probably a technical term for this, but like when it, the crossover country rock, like Wilco, Uncle Tupelo, mm. um, oh, there's probably another, a third example, but you know, that kind of music where it's sort of taking the country styling, but giving it a rock edge or a, or a, a modern pop influence, I guess. So where are you on someone like Dwight Yoakam? See, I know the name. I don't know any of the songs. Oh, sadness. He's one of my favorites. Yeah, I don't know. Like the only country, like legit country songs I know are the ones that kind of went crazy, super popular. And they're all like really old now. Like so that Garth Brooks song Mm -hmm. and um, like a Shania Twain song, like something that would have been on the radio and you'd have to be living in a cave to have not heard it. Like that's (laughs) as close as I get to being able to identify a country song. Yeah, that was actually the the time frame of music that where I enjoyed country the most. So I was a kid when when those folks were really popular, mm-hmm. um, and I really thoroughly enjoyed them. And then we kind of went into the, like the dark ages of country music, and for like twenty years, I wouldn't listen to one new song at all. It was all awful, couldn't stand it. And nowadays you've got the folks like Chris Stapleton who kind of sounds like old school country. Um, sort of, uh, you'd have to hear him to understand what I'm saying. Um, okay. because the, the, the actual music, the style is old fashioned, but it's definitely modern music. Like it's got that new heavier modern sound to it. Okay. Bassier. Um, yeah, but, and then you've got the folks like, you know, uh, Carrie Underwood and stuff, you know, who sing more pop country. Right. And when it's that much pop, I kind of like it. It's like, it, it's not trying to be something it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm okay with that. But yeah, there was like a 20 year period there where everything I listened to, I mean, it, fake accents, forcing it to be twangier than it needed to be. <laughs> and I just didn't, didn't have the patience for it. So where do you come down on jazz? It depends. Um, A lot of jazz to me sounds chaotic. Um, So I like things that are jazz influenced. So when you, but like when you think of jazz, because jazz is, is a type of music. It's a genre, but there's so many different styles. So, I mean, you got, you got everything from like the 1920s, Louis Armstrong, New Orleans jazz to big band swing, you know, the 1950s and sixties hard bop. And then the chaotic stuff I think you're thinking of is sort of like in the late sixties, the seventies, like there was all this experimental, uh, like Ornette Coleman came in and it was just, it was just, sounds and noise and there wasn't really a melody there wasn't really a a a through line to 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 hook you as a listener it was very experimental a lot of the later miles davis stuff was like that too yeah so yes you're you're hitting on the part that i don't like i don't like that chaotic sound where it's like seven different instruments and none of them are playing the same music yeah don't like it can't stand it in fact it gets my anxiety flared um, I have issues with sounds, <laughs> um, which we won't go into great depth on, but chaotic noises is one of them. Okay. Um, but I love old swing music. I like the new modern stuff like, um, like uh, what's her name? I'm not sure how she pronounces her first name. It's like Caro or Cairo, <laughs> like the syrup or something. <laughs> um, Emerald. Her stuff is great. Um, postmodern jukebox. I okay. love them. Um yep you know, making those, those remakes in that style. I like blues. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I like that kind of stuff, but yeah. yeah, if it, if it goes into the noise, like it's one of the reasons I don't like really heavy metal music either. Mm-hmm. If it's just somebody screaming over a bunch of drums and guitars. No, thank you. Yeah. Just I'm a, it. I'm a big fan of the 1950s, sixties, hard bop jazz. So like Miles Davis, John Coltrane, uh, Char- uh, Charlie Parker, Charles Mingus, uh, the guys. When you when you think of just like cool jazz, mm-hmm. is is the, the the people who are making that like Ella Fitzgerald, Sarah Vaughan, Billie Holiday. Like I could just listen to that music until the end of time, and I'd be happy. Yes, yes. Yeah. 
So, but in, in in talking about jazz, there's a reason I brought it up is because yes. our our guest this week is Chris Bowers, and Chris is probably today most well known as the composer of Dear White People, uh, which is a, a Netflix original. But he comes from a very solid jazz background. He he was a jazz musician. He continues to play jazz. And he brings a lot of that that influence, that jazz sensibility to his composure his his composions, I almost just said. <laughs> the 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 music that he composes for film and TV because he's done Dear White People, he's done a number of documentaries. I know he's got a uh, he's working on a documentary coming up that I know you're very excited about. Uh, but it, it, it's it, his music is not the quote unquote typical music that you would think of when you think soundtrack music or or music that's going to accompany a, a film or a television show so I, why don't before we sort of get circle back around and talk about uh his music for dear white people and, and sort of where he came from i know the film that you're excited about is he's doing the the music for a documentary about bethany hamilton yes yes i've been fascinated with her life ever since i learned who she was when i was younger so who is she for people who don't know? Uh, Bethany Hamilton is probably the most famous female surfer. Um, and one of the reasons that she is as famous as she is, uh, either fortunately un- or unfortunately, because she is a very good surfer. Uh, so I don't mean to just dis- diminish that. But when she was like 13 or 14 or something, she was a young teenager. Um, she was surfing with um, like her dad and I think a couple of friends, maybe one of her brothers, she's got a fairly large family in a spot they don't normally surf in, uh, in Hawaii. They, they lived in Hawaii and they would surf all over the place. And uh, she got attacked by a shark and it bit her arm off. And she learned how to surf with one arm. Um, which is hard to do because surfing is all about balance. Right. I was going to say that doesn't sound, when you just say that, it doesn't sound like that's that like, Oh, okay. That doesn't sound like that's a great feat. But when you think about it, surfing is all about balance. Mm-hmm. And it's all about controlling the board um, because you know, most of us, when we picture surfing, if we're not surfers, which I'm not, by the way, I have no desire to ever try that. I'm terrified <laughs> of drowning. Um, so, but I like watching it. And to me, the most interesting part is how they get out there as opposed to the riding the wave. Um, so it just, she had to overcome that sort of thing because most people, they use their hands on either side of the board to dive into the waves Mm-hmm. And so she couldn't even do that, right? Like, cause she couldn't hold both sides of the board and they had to, they had to come overcome that. And then, you know, she had a few bad tournaments she entered and she almost quit. And, you know, obviously she still competes today. So, and I think she's got like a couple kids now even. So mm-hmm. yeah, she's, she's lived a full life. Well, that is exciting. And that's, that's coming next year. I think it's in production right now, but that is a film that he's got on the horizon as composer. Um, one of the things that I found really interesting in talking to him though, is that, you know, we've talked to a lot of artists of many stripes and one thing that's almost universal is that people who have chosen to pursue this career, whether it be writing or or directing or making music or drawing and making art in some fashion. It's almost always been against their parents' wishes, you know? I mean, it's like, because choosing to pursue that life, you know, following an artistic life, being creative, it is very, very difficult to make a living doing it, much Mm -hmm. less to make a good living or be, you know, find lucrative career it's always um it's just this this huge unknown that people will jump into and you have to be in love with it you can't imagine yourself doing anything else and you can't go into it for money you're going to go into it because it's what you, you you can't imagine not writing you can't imagine not acting you can't imagine not um making something for people to consume and enjoy mm-hmm. uh and Almost invariably, the people we've talked to, their parents have been skeptical, even though they, they've been supportive, but they've been skeptical or that you maybe you should have a fallback. Maybe you should, you know, think about doing something else. But with Chris, what's fascinating is that his parents really wanted him to become a musician. And that and that it's in, in the 
hundreds of interviews that I've had with creators, that's almost unheard of. <laughs> that is pretty rare. Um, <laughs> we, we live in an age of practicality, um, yeah. probably, especially for you and me. Um, it's, it's our generational thing. Uh, think of our parents, right? Like they were the generation just coming out of like the depression, right? Um, yeah. My parents are a bit older. I'm not sure how old your parents are. Um, my parents were born in 42, 1942. So that was also, that was the uh, war, right? The um, right. world war was going on. And um, so they were very practical people. And so they instilled a lot of that practicality in us. And I find myself trying to stop myself <laughs> from, from forcing my kid to do stuff that he clearly doesn't want to do. Mm -hmm. um, in so much as I, I challenge him to try things, but then if he doesn't like them, I don't really push them. Um, but I do challenge him to try things because you never know what you might take a liking to. Um, and he's just not the sort to just say like, Ooh, I want to try that. Right. Yeah. He just doesn't do it. But um, so far, not really too much on the creativity side. Um, <laughs> he shows a bit of a flair for writing, um, but he doesn't really show a lot of interest in, in it right now. So yeah. we'll see. But I think, I think, um, I think it's a little different for your family, right? Like, yeah, my wife is a musician. She went to music school and not for performing, but for education. So her degree is in music education. So she continues to teach. She teaches piano. And uh, so she has that musical background. She's very musical, obviously. I am not. But she's passed on that love of music and the, the skill of music to my daughter, who is nine now. And uh, she plays the piano. She plays a Chinese stringed instrument. She sings uh, at the, at, in a children's choir at Johns Hopkins University. She, what else does she do? Oh, she wants to take up cello in school now. So she loves music of all kinds. And the thing, it's funny that like, she loves being able to do it, to be able to play. And she loves showing off for people and performing, but she hates practicing. <laughs> and it uh, it it doesn't matter how many times we tell her that you, know, you need to practice to get better you like that feeling of people clapping and applauding for you well you have to be able to you have to practice in order to get better she she understands all of that like instinctually but uh, it doesn't make it any easier she still fights us at every every turn to practice <laughs> which chris I, as i was talking to, to chris bowers he said the same thing you know when he was younger he started playing very young his parents were all about it they they, they really supported him they really you know encouraged him to to play music and and to make that part of his life and he enjoyed it he loved it but even he said that you know the the whole sitting down to practice thing was never something that he really enjoyed he didn't he didn't take to it so let's go into the interview with Chris Bowers. I talked to him about his, you know, growing up with that in the, the musical influence from his parents and how much of his success is credited to that. I talk about, we talk about uh, his, his jazz career. We talk about the music that he's written and continues to write for Dear White People. We talk about some of the projects he's got coming up. He performed at the White House, I believe twice uh, for, for the Obamas. So we talked a little bit about that. He has had a very full career and he is still at the, I don't want to say the very beginning of his career, but he is still closer to the beginning of his career than he even is to the middle of his career. So he has had uh, an incredible number of accomplishments for having, for being so young. Um, and I just had a great conversation with him and we're just going to go right into that. And I hope you guys enjoy it. Once again, I am Jamie Green at the Roarbots. You can find the show everywhere at the GBB podcast. Come back week after week. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We love having you. Uh, we have we bring you excellent, I think, humbly, he said, conversations <laughs> every week uh, with all the people from all over the, the creative spectrum. And uh, if you want to hear somebody special, let me know. If you want to hear from somebody, some type of person in an industry we haven't covered before, please let me know. Reach out to me. Just let me know who it is, what it is you want to hear about, and I'll do my best to get them on the show. Uh, until next week, though, I am Jamie Green and Samantha Fisher. And where can they find you, Samantha? Oh, uh, on Twitter, at Samantha Fisher. 
Fantastic. And here is Chris Bowers. Enjoy and take care. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. To talk. It's uh, awesome to have you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thanks for having me. Um, you have kind of a, a unique background because, as I understand it, your parents really, really wanted you to be a musician. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they decided before I was born they wanted me to play piano for some, some reason. <laughs> <laughs> Did, uh, were, they, were they musicians themselves? No, actually. I mean, my dad played drums and he was in high school for a short while but other than that they weren't at all i think they um uh just kind of decided that music would be <clears throat> an important thing for me to um uh to have for my development and and i guess that's part of what led the decision but neither of them were musicians themselves that's really interesting i've talked to a number of musicians and it's always kind of a, a spin on the same story of that like they wanted them to do anything except try to become a professional musician because it's so hard to do but your parents seem like it was the opposite that's what they wanted you to do yeah exactly i know i was pretty lucky in that way <laughs> was there a lot of pressure on you or was it just sort of like they wanted to kind of nudge you in that direction but you know you made your own choices you know they did a really good job of somehow balancing um the um the pressure of making sure that I was on top of my practicing schedule and all of that, but not really making me feel like I was being forced to do it. Um, mm -hmm. But my dad, he actually sat behind me um, in our living room as I practiced piano from the time I was maybe six up until 16. <laughs> and wow. so uh, there's definitely a, a, a kind of a firm presence, but not anything that felt too overbearing somehow. Yeah. Was it something that you wanted to do? My daughter is nine now, and she's been playing piano for about four years. My wife went to music school, oh, wow. and uh, she didn't go. My wife didn't go for performance. She was uh, went for music education, is what her degree is, and um, and my daughter likes it. But like, there's still the constant kind of like, now you have to practice, and there's the fighting, <laughs> and there's you know the frustration. So was there? Did you have any of that, or was it just that it was just something you loved from the beginning? No, I definitely had that. I think especially around that age, especially once you get to the age where everybody else is playing outside and playing mm -hmm. video games or doing other things. And for me, that was part of the reason why my parents actually decided to put me into jazz piano lessons as well mm -hmm. as classical lessons because um, I think uh, whether they knew it or not, it gave me a freedom to create. Like I was able to start figuring out how to compose my own stuff or how to improvise and things like that. And so I think that is part of what made it um made it interesting for me and kept it interesting around that age yeah did you um i don't know maybe this happened a little bit later but did you ever have like that period of rebellion where you're like i'm gonna do anything except be a musician you know what dad i'm gonna be a dentist like did you have to go <laughs> through that <laughs> yeah, no you know what actually i, I kind of always i always loved it i think when i was younger and especially around that time when i started to um like get into improvisatory music and writing my own music it became just my way of expressing myself i wasn't a very talkative kid and and kind of kept to myself and so um i don't know the piano was kind of my way to um channel any sort of emotion or frustration or anger or whatever or it also was the thing that would make me kind of cool at school because i would play songs from the radio and stuff like that so me not being maybe the coolest person or the yeah. coolest kid just in myself, me having this extra talent made me a little cooler. So I think those are the things that kind of let me uh, hold on to it. So yeah, I've always, I always kind of had a love for it. I never really wanted to do anything else. Nice. How, how much do you really credit? I mean, I, my guess here is going to, is going to be that you're going to say a lot, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. So how, how much do you credit your parents influence that, that, you know, like you said, that firm, but, guiding influence on your success today i think a lot i think they just kind of um ironed into me the the um the diligence and the the work ethic that i that i had at a, a young age and so as i started to fall in love with it and and fall in love with the process of practicing and growth on my own um i'm sure a lot of that comfortability came from the fact that i've been doing it for so long with their guidance. But, um, yeah, by the time I was in high school, um, funny enough, I got into a big fight with my dad about, about something that I was working on because it was at a point where I felt like 
I needed to to continue without him sitting behind me <laughs> anymore. But but um, but yeah, I definitely think that I had that uh, that work ethic because of them for sure. Yeah, um, you know, you started out as as a as a you still are, but I mean, you started out as a piano player, jazz player, and. I, my assumption here is that writing and playing jazz, if it's uh, for solo especially, but even if it's just like a trio or a small group, it can be a very solitary pursuit. You know, you're you're sitting down and you're writing and you're performing the music, and it's this your your own story that you're telling. Um, how hard was it then for you to make that shift to composing for film and TV, where you're just you know, you're you're a you're a big cog, but you're just a cog in a much bigger machine where you have to take these creative cues from stories that might not necessarily be your own. Yeah, well, you know, I think a lot of that. Um, one, I, I've been wanting to to get into film scoring since I was around that age as well. I think when I was around um, maybe ten or eleven, I told my parents that getting into film scoring was an end goal of mine. Hmm. Um, and as far as my career goes and so i think it was always always a passion of mine but also as a as a jazz pianist that's kind of my role in any sort of jazz ensemble like my role as a as a accompanist is to is to constantly shift and make sure that i'm serving whoever the lead is um at any given time and so if somebody's playing something and a lot of times when we're improvising they're playing something that's a little different than than the usual chords, and it's my job to then make them sound right or to conform to make sure that that um, they're sounding as, as good as possible. And so a lot of my approach to film scoring is very similar. Like my, my role is just to, like you said, serve the story, and I kind of find um, a lot of enjoyment in that, a lot of enjoyment in trying to figure out how to best serve this story and how to best um, help uh, support these characters. Yeah. I want I want to back up there just something you said you wanted to be you wanted to film uh, score films since you were 10 or 11 somewhere in that. I think most 10 year olds don't even realize that that's something that people do like, <laughs> the music that they see with the show or the TV or the movie is just there like nobody created that that's just part of the movie like how did you realize that that was something that people did at that young age yeah I think a lot of it came down to um listening to some of these scores outside of the context of the movies and so like when we would go see, especially um, around that time, like go see Jurassic Park or mm. Star Wars or uh, a lot of these um, these movies that John Williams scored, actually. I would then go buy the recordings because um, I was already buying jazz albums, kind of starting my collection. And so I started kind of going into soundtracks and record, um, uh, collecting those those albums and listening to that and still feeling the same feelings and excitement and all the stuff that I felt whenever I watched the film, I realized that, that this music has a lot of power. This music is actually a big part of the storytelling. And so I think that's part of why, um, why I, I decided so early I wanted to, to do it. Yeah. So how did you end up in that world? I mean, it sounds like it was a conscious choice because that was the direction you wanted to go. Yeah, it was, but, you know, obviously it's it's a really strange and tough <laughs> industry to get into yeah. and figure out how to get your way into it and so um one thing I, I will say is i think that with me wanting to do it and it being very uh, front of mind for me i would just talk about it all the time and so i think anybody that knew me knew that that was something that i wanted to do and so because of that very early on i had a lot of my first projects came from very random um connections but again because they knew that i wanted to get into film scoring and so the first thing i did was a documentary about Elaine Stritch and um, I ended up on that project just because this woman that was my manager for a while uh, recommended me to the director who was a friend of hers and okay. I just won a jazz piano competition so I think it, it also made them excited to since they wanted a jazz score to have mm -hmm. this jazz pianist uh, do it but um, then uh, another documentary I did about Kobe Bryant for Showtime I got because a friend of mine from a high school jazz band um, who I hadn't seen since we were in this like all-star jazz band together, reached out to me asking if I would be interested because he was producing it. And so a lot of these things, again, came from the fact that these people just knew that um, I wanted to be a film composer and they liked my music and just kind of recommended me for these these positions, but not really because I had any um, you know previous work to uh, 
to validate it, so I appreciate them <laughs> giving me that chance. <laughs> Now that you're in that world, I mean, it, do you get the sense that that's kind of how it works? Like that's how people, you know, quote unquote, make the, you know, find their break is like they, it's just, it's, it's who you know, and it's the connections that you have. I mean, how often do people really, you know, like actors, like how, how often do you have to audition for a position like that? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing. I think especially right now you have a lot of people that are stumbling into it because they've, um, kind of cobbled together their own uh, career either as a recording artist or putting out their own music. And so getting into, yeah, we're, we're in a time right now where a lot of filmmakers and producers are looking outside of the the norm to try to get their composer. And so they're reaching out to people that, that have just been making music and um, kind of stumbled into yeah. film scoring. But that being said, there is still, especially with TV, there is still this, um, this, this fear of letting somebody new into that space because there's just such a high demand and a high turnaround rate and you have to make sure the person is is up for for that challenge and so um you know a lot of times with that you have to come through the ranks and assist somebody and it's somewhat of a catch-22 where you can't get the work without having the work and right. uh, vice versa and so um yeah i think with tv it's still a little tougher to get into if you haven't had like a long um, uh, a long filmography before that, but I think mm-hmm. with with everything else, yeah, people are starting to look outside of the the film composing world to try to get something a little different. Yeah. Do you think that you knew what to expect? I mean, you had been looking toward this your whole life, and you know, you've been talking it up, and then once you were actually there, and you you got your first few jobs, like was it was it eye opening? Like was it a surprise to you, or were you like, yeah, yeah, this is what I was preparing for? <laughs> I think there were aspects that were pretty eye opening. There's uh, the, just the the general practice of um, translating emotional ideas or words into music, and the fact that um, how how uh, there can be these really small differences that can totally change how somebody feels something like that. That first project I did, that um, Elaine Stritch documentary, there were a couple of cues that I wrote where uh, a note I got back on one cue, for example, was you know, this feels a little too sad and it feels like she's, um, you know, she's just been told that she's about to die, but she's, mm-hmm. she's not. So we need to feel sadness, but not so, not so dire of a situation. And we went back and forth on the queue a few times and the ultimate fix ended up being just replacing the main melody from piano, um, uh, replacing it with another keyboard instrument. Mm-hmm. And so it was really fascinating to me that just the sound of the piano in the specific register made this director feel like this piece of music was now incredibly sad and all he had to do was shift the register and change the instrument and now it didn't feel as sad and so i think little things like that um still to this day continue to be really fascinating to me just how um certain sounds make people feel Mm -hmm. and how you can't really um you can't really explain that yeah how how much did you take though from you know your experiences as as a jazz performer you know performing um as, with an ensemble or by yourself but in front of an audience and changing it up every night how much of that is applicable to what you're doing now with with scoring yeah a lot of it because one you have to be very quick to um to make adjustments and so mm-hmm. there are plenty of times where i'm told 
just hours before something needs to be finished that what I did is not working. I need to come up with the, <laughs> come up with something new. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and come up with something new very, uh, very quickly and on the spot. And um, and in general, you know, having to think of new melodies every single day, all day. Um, that's uh, where I think my skills as, as an improviser come to use because. That's all I was trying to do whenever I improvise. Whenever I'm improvising, I'm trying to play something that's that's incredibly melodic or memorable or whatever. And so it's just um, you know a matter of doing that on repeat, essentially. Yeah, is that is that something you miss? You know, the improvisational part of it. Uh, yes and no. I think that I still do enough of it on on the side, like still doing shows here and there, that I don't mm-hmm. miss it too much yeah. and. And I think I'm still just falling falling so much in love with the scoring process that um that I haven't missed it. I do I do miss performing live and playing with other musicians. I think that's the one thing about being a film composer is that it's very uh um it's a it's a solitary mm-hmm. uh career. But um but that being said, um yeah, I still really love working on something and crafting it over and over again over time, uh, to make sure that it's as close to quote unquote perfect as possible. I think that's that's been a lot of fun for me. Yeah. Your uh your music on Dear White People is me, me, I mean this in a good way. It's a little bit all over the place. You know, you've got classical, <laughs> you've got jazz, you've got, you know, standards, you've got, you know, more pop, hip hop, R and B. You know, what creatively I guess, is, is that difficult for you to shift between those different genres? Or do you need to be in a different headspace to write a different type of music? Not really. I think a lot of times the um, the scene or the conversations I'm having with Justin, the show's creator, um, put me in that headspace immediately. Like there are times where I'm watching something, and um, it immediately makes me feel like it needs to be a certain sound. And <clears throat> once I'm kind of locked into that, it's it's um, pretty easy to go from there. So I actually kind of find it refreshing to have to jump back and forth and do all these different things um and a lot of time again the the show is is dictating that and so it's a little easier to follow the show's lead as opposed to trying to fit a you know square peg into a round hole right right um the the show not only features your original score and original songs but it also uses a lot of licensed you know contemporary songs what is the thought process behind that like when at what point is the decision made, like, here, we're going to use an original piece here, or we're going to, you know, this other song that already exists is perfect for this scene? Um, most of that is done between Justin and the, the editor when they're editing the show, um, especially because a lot of times they want to have music to edit to. And so by the time we do our spotting session, which is when um, the music team and uh, Justin and uh, Yvette and the editor sit down to watch through an episode and talk about where music should come in and out a lot of times they've already decided that this should be a licensed track and this should be score and then there are times where they where we're not sure and they'll kind of have uh, both of us take a stab at it myself or the music supervisor morgan rhodes and so um yeah a lot of that is is decided between them before beforehand but sometimes when we're in the room it's um you know we talk about it and figure out what would feel best why would something work a little bit better than the other um and then again it sometimes it's just both morgan and i just try something and we yeah. see whatever feels feels best yeah have you ever watched a scene and, and, and that they used a licensed song for and you're just thinking like i totally could have done better than that <laughs> you know no not really i think really? most of the time it's yeah most of the time it's the opposite i feel like there are times where i'm like oh maybe we really should have found another piece of music for this <laughs> That, yeah, I don't, I don't think you're being fair on yourself there. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, I, I read in season two of the show, it was heavily influenced by color. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, so Justin had done a bunch of research before this season, and um, I stumbled upon these paintings from the Civil War era. And there are these paintings that were um, meant to get uh, African Americans at the time to join the army. And so... As he was looking at these these paintings, he noticed that there were colors that seemed to be prevalent in each of these paintings, and some of those colors were like brown, green, white, black, uh, gold, red, white, and blue, uh, and so so on and so forth. And so he created a notebook 
that gave a definition to each of these colors. And so, for example, blue might represent confinement or white might represent concealment. And um, before they started shooting, he explained to me that these colors would inform uh, the costume design and the set design whenever characters were put in positions that aligned with one of these definitions. And so he asked me to write themes, musical themes, based on each of these colors before they even started shooting so that, uh, one, we could really dial them in and make sure that they felt right and sounded right. And two, once we got into the spotting session process and the scoring process, we were able to look at episodes and say, oh, this is a scene where we have a lot of gold here and this is what so-and-so is dealing with, so let's let's pull on the true true self theme here, um, and so on and so forth. And so it kind of made it uh, a somewhat easier process to be able to pull from those themes, but also every time we were, we had to re rethink how the theme should fit here because the way I wrote it originally a lot of times didn't work, yeah. um, you know, against the, the scene, the specific scene we were trying to match it with. And so we had to spend a little time shaping each of them but it was a lot of fun to have these themes set up beforehand yeah it, that sounds like it's a a challenge but it's i mean a welcome one i mean it, that could be a, an amazing creative challenge but it's also kind of rare like i've never heard of a show doing something like that before yeah it was pretty interesting and rare uh for me as well and it kind of um and I, i'm always for my own music or for things outside of film i'm always inspired by um, a lot of imagery or uh, things like that. And so it actually became fun to write to these ideas and these ideas of trying to make something sound like a color uh, mm. in the first place. said when he sat down at the, before working on the season he came up with the, these are the different colors and these are the definitions or the descriptions that we're going to have for each color did he give you any other direction beyond that or was that really what you were working from that was pretty much it there were some times where he um he was pushing me in general to have very strong melodies he wanted melodies that that um that were going to be memorable or that um you know at some point to bring up john williams again he was he basically sent me an email once and said, you know, we're not, I'm not saying to go completely John Williams, but I mean, dot, dot, dot. Yeah. <laughs> so it was kind of this thing of like, you know, um, I mean, John, John Williams' music is like the most, arguably the most memorable uh, melodies of, of all time. And so trying to write stuff that, that had strong memorable memory uh, melodies became um, kind of a focal point. Yeah. The, the music on, on that show though is, it's very often front and center, and it gets featured right along with the actors and the story that's playing out. Um, on other shows, music might just be part of the background. It might just be part of the landscape. On those types where you're just you're you're contributing to the overall theme and, and feel of a show, but it's it doesn't jump out at the audience. Does that make that music easier to write? Is it less stressful, or is it is it the same for you? For me, it's actually a little more difficult because it kind of becomes, um, it messes with my head a little bit because I think that, um, you know, you're trying to write something that that does just enough, like not, not too much, but also not too little because, um, you know, as a creative person, you can uh, be a little underwhelmed or disappointed writing music that, that doesn't do anything at all. Yeah. So trying to figure out how to make that as interesting as possible and sometimes then it becomes like getting even deeper into textures and so although this pad might just be pretty much one note and one chord this entire time there are a bunch of different textures that are coming in and out playing that same note and trying to like um mess with like the harmonics uh harmonic series or things like that so trying to have as much create creativity within those confines as possible just to make it a little bit more interesting um but again, that that can actually be a lot tougher than 
than it sounds because mm. when you're trying to do something that's simple, um, any small thing totally changes it. And so trying to uh, um, trying to control that that is a little difficult. Yeah. Even when you have projects like that, where you know you have more confining restrictions that you're working under, and, and, the, and the music is not necessarily going to be featured, are you still writing with the intention that the audience will notice it, or or are you just you know you're you're just doing what you need to do in order to to set that theme? Yeah, more so the latter. I actually, never really think about the audience what I'm doing, and I'm more so just thinking about whether or not I'm serving the the picture or the story and whatever's happening there. Um, and, you know, a lot of times that the, the filmmakers and the, um, the sound mixers, when they actually go to do the final mix of the show, will mix the music so low that it can't really be right. felt or heard anyways. Right. And so, um, you know, when that happens, obviously, like, it's going to um, have a different impact on the audience. And so I'm never really trying to figure out what's going to make people feel a certain way it's more so whether or not i feel um or the the director feels like we're serving the picture in the best way that's interesting because when you watch a show or a movie that you didn't work on do you, I, I i imagine you notice the music when you watch it oh yeah for sure like it's kind of hard not to notice anything else <laughs> yeah so it's it is that a switch, or is that just something that you've learned to 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 hone because you're a professional? You know, if you watch a, a show and you're just, you're dialed in, you're tuned into that music, uh, and that's what you're noticing because that's what you do. But yet, when you get into the studio to write or record, you're not thinking about the audience at all. Yeah, I think it's um, well, it's it's because I kind of approach my job. I would imagine similarly to like the way that actors are approaching their job where I just um, I look at a scene over and over again and then try to figure out what I'm supposed to, what I feel or what I feel from from what's happening and then I just write from that, that feeling and write from that place um, and so I kind of try to like shut everything off because I think thinking about the way that something's going to be perceived or how somebody might feel when they hear it or something like that just makes me like incredibly judgmental. Um, or it becomes, like you said, that, that other side where I'm thinking about, Oh, this, could this be better? Or could you have done this better or, um, whatever, uh, so on and so forth. So I think that like when I'm working, I just try to focus on how I'm supposed to feel and write something and see if it makes me feel that way. And then from that point on, I'd, I don't really think about anything else as far as how I might be judged. Yeah. yeah. When you write songs, like original songs, do you do it with a particular singer in mind, though? Yeah, actually, sometimes. But even even songs that aren't going to have um, lyrics or songs for myself, it's funny, I was actually talking to a friend of mine just yesterday. I was playing him some music that I'm working on for my next album, and um, and one of the songs so far is just, just a piano melody and um and he was like oh wow yes yeah, this, this actually reminds me of Sufjan Stevens and I was like oh that's funny because I actually was thinking of him when I was writing oh, nice. this melody <laughs> and so I think um yeah I, I love the way that certain singers uh, and songwriters shape their melodic phrases or or um yeah just the way that they the, the way that they sing things um Mm-hmm. has just such a strong vibe to it that, they, yeah, there are definitely times I'm writing and I write something with, with that in mind. Yeah. Um, you know, when you write an album or if you work on a film, you can you can see the whole project from beginning to end. You, you know the arc that characters go through. You know where the story is going to go. And so you can kind of um, make the music follow that path. But when you're working in TV, it's it's episodic. And you might not know at the beginning of a season where everybody or the story is going to be at the end of the season, much less two or three seasons down the road. So how do you, when you're starting out, how do you nail down a theme or, or a character's themes or an overall theme uh, or find the right tone So with, when there's so much unknown coming down the pike? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty difficult. I mean, a lot of that um, firstly comes from the director of the showrunner and with Dear White People, for example, the conversations I have with Justin about what these characters are 
going to go through uh, this season or what we need to make sure that we're going to point out ahead of time or start to foreshadow or allude to. And so, for example, with season two, the way that we approach that with um, the Order of X, which is this secret society that they're kind of investigating or um, trying to uncover the entire season, there was at one point in um, the middle of the season where Justin said, you know, we should probably establish some sort of theme for the Order of X so that by the time we get to episode 10 where everything is finally revealed, that theme can be Mm. heard in its full form um, and be recognizable because we've kind of planted these seeds uh, beforehand. So a lot of that just comes from these conversations that we're having or um, um, before we even start working on the season, I I do get the scripts for the entire show so I can read through to to see... um, ahead and see what is what is coming to make sure that we're shaping the characters right but ultimately i kind of like reacting in the moment and and um watching these things for the first time because i think that it helps me get to um get to a sound faster or get to some sort of musical idea faster but mm-hmm. um in general i think kind of having somebody like justin to help guide uh, guide me through that process is is pretty great given feedback like you know you, you've written something and you're just like ah actually that's i don't think that's going to work because something that's coming you know that you might not know about yet yeah there definitely are times i mean i can't think of one specifically mm-hmm. but i definitely feel like there have been times where um he's told me that or he's told me that i think it's a lot of times it's it's kind of saying that this isn't going to work because we need something that sounds like this for for another part um right. in this in this season or in this show so yeah there definitely have been times where that's happened right you mentioned you just teased right there that you've got another album coming out so you, you still are working on the side away from tv right i am and a lot of it is now trying to figure out interesting multidisciplinary things just because like i said earlier i'm inspired by a lot of stuff outside of um music itself and so uh the project i'm working on now um is going to incorporate a lot of like visual elements and there are other projects that I'm working on for myself that involve um uh like food and uh visual art and dance and things like that so um yeah I'm I'm staying pretty busy with personal projects on the side and building them all up but they're all going to be um almost a bit more like performance art as opposed to um, like a traditional album and then traditional tour or something like that, like putting out maybe a, a piece and then doing a few select shows of that piece with some sort of installation and then going on to the next thing. That's amazing. I love that idea. Uh, you, <laughs> you were describing, you were talking about that, you know, blending music with, with, with food and, and with art. And yeah, I'm seeing like a museum art installation or performance art on stage or something like that. So it's you're thinking like more like, I don't know if you want to use like limited um, performances, you know, you know, you're not going to go the old school route of just putting it. Here's my CD. You could listen to it on on infinite repeat, but this is something that has to be experienced. Exactly. Yeah. Because I think that again, one, we're we're at the point now where I feel like everybody has, has, has uh, shows that have everything going on. Like, you know, from 3d shows like flying Lotus's show to, um, U2 show with their crazy kind of spectacle and I feel like audiences um, have grown to to love like being stimulated in all these different ways um, and also I think it, it calls back to my first love for getting into this which was the, hearing these, these film scores but feeling the things that I felt when I watched the films and things like that and so trying to recreate these things that again excite mult- multiple uh, senses because I think it just um, has a little bit longer of a of a lasting impact on people. So do you think that there's still a place for traditional just jazz performances? Like you go to the jazz club and you watch a trio. Oh yeah, for sure. I think that's. I mean, that's the thing in itself. That's something that I really intend on getting back to at some point. I think right now I'm just interested in in all these other um, 
uh, kind of options. But mm-hmm. but yeah, ultimately, I think that there's such a when when people can do that on a on a great uh, and captivating level like you look at fred hirsch's trio for example like if you go see fred hirsch's trio live it feels like you're watching um a film unfold or you know they're, they're such great he's such a great storyteller they're such great storytellers with their ensemble that it feels incredibly captivating and moving and and um yeah so i think especially depending on the performer uh you can go see just a simple acoustic performance and it still has a pretty incredible impact yeah uh, you have still, relatively speaking, a very young career, but uh, you've won all. I mean, you've won major awards. You've won an Emmy. I have to ask: in all of that, where would you rank playing for the Obamas at the White House? <laughs> oh, that's definitely pretty close to the top. Not, <laughs> I can't um, imagine it would be anywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was just such a special moment to be a part of that concert with all those different people. I mean, you had. Um, like Herbie Hancock, Aretha Franklin, and Sting, um, and a bunch of others, and also my my dad got to come to that show, and him being in that space it just felt um, uh, pretty historic. I oh, mean, sure. especially given what we went to after that. Ugh, so um, let's not talk about you know, that. It felt it, it felt pretty special. Yeah, no doubt. Um, what what's the hardest thing you've ever written? Hmm. You know that's tough. I feel like the hardest thing is always music for myself i think just because um i don't have anybody telling me uh that it's it's it works or not (laughs) you know and i think that i can get in my head a little bit easier when i'm when i'm writing for myself when i'm writing for somebody else it's very easy for me to write something send it to them and have them tell me yes that works or no it doesn't work and it's also very easy for me to put my ego aside when they tell me it doesn't work and just say okay well i'll try something new and whenever I'm writing stuff for myself, it's almost like I'm um, uh, in a bit of a vacuum and I don't really, uh, you know, I'm a little timid with sharing with people because, you know, nobody's going to say that's not good because it's, it's um, you know, you're like sharing your your heart a little bit. And so a lot of times people just be like, oh, yeah, oh, that, that's great. And I never really know if, <laughs> if it actually is great or if they're just saying that or, you know, yeah. so I think it's a little easier for me to get into my head whenever I'm working on my own stuff. Yeah. Last question and I'll let you go. But like, like I just, I just alluded to this, like you've done incredible things in, in such a short space of time, aside from what you we were talking about with the, um, the installation or the more experimental performances that you've got coming down the pike, where, where you go from here? What's next? I mean, like where, what are you looking, looking at on the horizon? Um, so right now I'm finishing up a, um, a film called Green Book that's, uh, with Marshall Ali and Viva Mortensen that comes out later this mm. year that I'm really excited about. It's about, um, a jazz pianist named Donald Shirley, uh, who was, it's a true story about, about his life. And he as a classically trained pianist that was basically made to play jazz by his label because they felt like an African-American musician at that time wouldn't be, um, widely accepted as a classical musician. And so... Um, I'm really excited about that film. Uh, one, because it's it's just a really great film, but also I not only scored it, but I ended up playing all of the piano in the film, and um, they replaced my head with Mahershala's head <laughs> in post-production. Um, but uh, but yeah, I'm working on that and working on uh, a couple of um, a couple of other projects, like a film with uh, Justin Simeon, the guy that cr- created yeah. Dear White People, working on a film together, and um, and I continue to do stuff with. Kobe Bryant, he, um, since his retirement, he started a film studio, and so uh, I've been providing, other than the the uh, the short film that he won the Oscar for, which John Williams actually scored, uh, <laughs> other than that, um, I've been providing all of the music for, for the content we've been creating, so we're kind of in um, planning mode as far as what he wants to do next and what projects we're going to try to roll out in the future. So, just a little bit busy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just a little bit.
This has been the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com and on Twitter and Facebook at thegbbpodcast. Thanks again for subscribing and listening. We really do appreciate it. And until next week, I am Jamie Green, and you can find me at The Roarbots. Take care. Take care.